Welcome to Walking in Faith with Bishop Daly. I'm Bishop Tom Daly, the seventh bishop of the Diocese of Spokane here in Eastern Washington State. Welcome to our show. I'm interviewing for the first time uh, Monsignor Mark Potler. Now, Monsignor Potler is the judicial vicar, and that's a term I'm going to ask him to explain. He wasn't part of that bad show that was canceled that was the bishop and the vicars. Uh, he was the only sane of the four vicars, so he opted not to be part of that regular uh, entourage that had the radio show. But we have Father Potler, Monsignor Potler, um, just as a sidebar, uh, Monsignor Potler was ordained in 1974, and um, he and uh, Father Me, I, because of their service to the diocese, um, Father Potler at the time, now Monsignor Potler, I recommended them to uh, Pope Francis, and he bestowed upon them the title uh, Monsignor. So we congratulate uh, Monsignor Mark Potler for that, along with Monsignor Me. Uh, Monsignor Me has tried to be on this radio show a number of times, but right now we are filling them with. Uh, guests that uh, are speaking to um, a troubled America. So, uh, Monsignor Paula, tell us, where did you grow up? My home is Walla Walla, Washington. Mm -hmm. There I attended the, the school, which was that time, St. Patrick. Mm -hmm. Left uh, Walla Walla after the eighth grade. It's fairly customary in, in, in those ages for priestly formation to begin in the high school years. We had a high school program at that time at Bishop White Seminary. Not, not the current building, but uh, the, uh, the old, what we call the old house, and then uh, the extension of the chapel and classroom space. Uh, Bishop White had somewhere in the range of 80 high school-age seminarians. That lasted just one year because Bishop Tobel at that time had decided that we could, we could do well if we built a new facility. And that new facility was called Modern Clary Seminary. That's located in um, uh, the booming town of Colbert <laughs> that consists of a convenience store. <laughs> And, uh, and, and, and so there for three years as a high school seminarian, I continued my, my formation. Uh, Mater Clary extended its program into the first and then into the second years of college. And so uh, seminarians that were of that age were bused into, into Spokane and, and did, did classes at Gonzaga. But before I got to that point, that is before, after finishing high school, then there was another change in the, in the formation program. Bishop White Seminary was uh, reconstituted in a sense, reconfigured to become a house of studies for our college age seminarians. And so it was back to the future or back mm -hmm. to the past. And so myself, along with, uh, 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 well, just as a, a little note, my freshman class at Bishop White Seminary as a high school student was about 40 in number. Again, not exceptional for those years in, in, uh, in the vocation industry. Mm -hmm. And it was expected that most of those 40 would 
eventually go away, but they would be formed as educated Catholic laypersons. Um, they did go away. <laughs> and I do see on very rare occasions one or two of, uh, of those. Anyway, I went to the Bishop White as a college-aged uh, seminarian, and uh, uh, there were at that time, five of us, as I recall, in that class. Now, of those five, um, three of us ended up being ordained. Um, myself, uh, Father Joe Bell, who's recently retired, and Gary Steves, who left ministry fairly early on in his time in ministry. So, if you want to say, what's our batting average? Uh, 40 times at the plate, two of us got hits. <laughs> now, actually, that's, that probably isn't too bad. Yeah, the old model used to be, I think, 10% uh, of those who entered the seminary out of eighth grade were eventually ordained after 12 years of studies. That at least was the stat. Uh, and, and, that, general, and, that's, yeah. and that's about right. Mm -hmm. I know three, uh, three out of the yeah. 40. How did, um, so you went to uh, Louvain, Louvain in Belgium. Father Bell went to Rome. Went to Rome. Where did the other guy who left ministry go? Uh, Gary Sees also went to Rome. Okay. So we have um, the European adventure. Maybe that's for another uh, show. But when you go, you finish Bishop White, you go to Louvain. What were those years like in, in Belgium? They were very good years. I would say, first of all, the the, the academic formation there, of course, and we had primarily uh, Belgian professors who were proficient enough in English, and uh, the, the lecture method was simply the only way that uh, things were taught. And, but, but I think we had very, very bright men. I, I, I mentioned in particular uh, Pete Fronson, Jan Walgrove, um, Jan Lombrecht, who was a New Testament professor. Uh, we did have some Americans, um, uh, Ray Collins, who is a you know, fairly well-known biblical scholar. So th that, but th those were among some of the really uh, great academic influences and to a certain extent, uh, spiritual influences as well. So we had the academic program at uh, the smoke-filled classrooms <laughs> at the university. Mm -hmm. And then we had community life and uh, a sort of spiritual and pastoral formation at the college, you know, what we call the American College. Who was the rector Which really then? meant the American uh, residence. residence. The, the rector um, was uh, a priest from Oklahoma, Clem Pribble, mm -hmm. uh, a very solid priest and... I'm trying to recall, I think that Ray Collins may have become rector. Uh, like for, for the I know there was a, a priest of the diocese of Helena, Bill Graytack, I think. I don't know maybe his name was Father Graytack. He was the professor of my sister and brother-in-law at Carroll College and then went to be, he was, would have been the rector in uh, Levain in the um, early and mid-80s. Right. Uh, I, I, I recognize yeah. the name, but I never was in contact with him. Uh, the, you know, the academic formation, as I said, I thought was, was outstanding. The, uh, and part of that may have been due to the fact that the atmosphere was highly competitive. And these were very high-achieving 
mm -hmm. uh, guys that went to, went there. And so they worked very hard, and everybody kind of stimulated everybody else to work hard. And but the other part of it was the living in the, in this house with about a hundred uh, men, most of them seminarians, a few of them priests uh, from you know. You know, inter mm -hmm. even international priests, you know, who were at Louvain to do advanced studies. We spoke English, so we, so you get a, a very good sense mm -hmm. of what the church is like in Providence, Rhode Island, which had a huge contingent. That's right here, a huge. What about, how did you end up going to uh, Louvain and Joe Bell going to Rome, for example? Who handled that, Bishop Topol? Bishop Topol basically um, asked us what we would like. Mm -hmm. uh, I was... I was greatly influenced by um, Father Mike Savaleski, who came, who was a year ahead of me, and also Dave Brumbach, mm -hmm. uh, who, you know, they, they went to, they were our first two Spokane seminarians who went to Louvain, and they were greatly influenced by one of the Dutch priests, mm -hmm. Shuffleman. Why didn't, but Father Bishop Topol would have gone to the Sulpicians in Seattle. He wasn't a Leuven grad, was he? He was not, he was yeah. not a Leuven grad. At that time, it seemed that the Sulpicians and St. Thomas Seminary was having um, difficulties. Yeah. Difficulties. And so uh, I don't know that we that we sent anybody there uh, from, you know, from, well, I went, I went to Louvain in, in 70, and I don't think that anybody uh, subsequently went, went, to, there. went to St. And Thomas. And of course it closed in the, in the late 70s. Now, when you visit Walla Walla, um, for our listening audience here, of course, Eastern Washington know all about Walla Walla, but for those who may be listening in California and beyond, Walla Walla was uh, rural, it is rural, um, known for its onions, but now the wine. Um, but you have a, was it your cousin, Monsignor Hugo Potler? Was he a yes. cousin or an my, uncle? Or? My, my dad's first cousin mm -hmm. was Hugo. And Certainly, I knew him. I was somewhat influenced by him. Um, he he was a, a kind of a classic uh, church person, mm -hmm. churchman. And uh, yes, he he was he was well known, and I still meet people on occasion who mention him. Mm -hmm. he has, his entire career was spent between Walla Walla and Clarkston. There's a picture of him in the uh, entranceway of with a dog. Uh, and uh, and he has the hat. It's a very distinguished picture of clerical attire and uh, Skipper or whatever the little dog's name is. Yeah, uh, I, with I, them. I, don't know, I don't know what I remember, but yeah, uh, he, and he uh, he was very pleased to uh, be uh, designated as a monsignor. Whether his intercession had ended with me becoming one, I do not know. I think, Mark, it was a reward for your many years, 34 years as judicial vicar. Um, we're going to take a break uh, shortly, and then we come back for, uh, again, our listening audience, the whole concept of church law, canon law, a diocesan tribune. We've heard of annulments, and um, what does all this mean? Canonical, in, in many sense, ways, uh, Monsignor Potler, is an attorney, but he's a church attorney. And um, lest that get people nervous in the listening audience, we're going to take a break and come back and offer clarification as to his role as, as judicial vicar and uh, work uh, assisting the faithful, because that's what it is. Thank you.
Welcome back. It's Bishop Daly from the Diocese of Spokane. I'm interviewing Monsignor Mark Potler, who is the judicial vicar of our diocese. A listening audience may be unfamiliar with even uh, the term canon lawyer. Uh, how does the church uh, have its own set of laws? How does it apply? So why don't we just back up? You, um, why were you sent away to study? Uh, sent away sounds like you're being sent away to prison, but why were you chosen, Mark, to, uh, to study canon law? My best guess is that I was available and willing to do it. Okay. I was assigned at the time to either, uh, I forget, I really forget if I was, at, I think I was at Immaculate Heart Retreat, mm -hmm. Retreat House with uh, Dave Rossage, Monsignor Rossage, and I think the, 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 um, uh, the, Judicial vicar at that time, the person in charge of canon law stuff, that was uh, uh, Father John Osterman, thought, we need to upgrade our, our office. I need some, you know, some priests to, to get some basic knowledge about canon law. And I was, I was invited. I, I, I don't know if I was told or mm -hmm. asked, but anyway, I ended up in kind of an informal seminar with, uh, I think, three or four other priests, none of whom I remember now. Mm -hmm. I mean, one was Gary Sumter, who's left our diocese as another diocese, but, uh, but anyway. Uh, uh, so uh, Father Osterman gave us on a, a weekly or other weekly basis an orientation to uh, basically matrimonial law. Now, this was, this was at the same time the early 1980s, when the revised or new code of mm -hmm. canon law was to be promulgated. So I brought I brought some visual aids here, which <laughs> don't do as much good, <laughs> on but a radio at least program. for you. And, yeah. so, and so the first code uh, that was published was in 1983. That's when the new code of canon mm -hmm. law uh, emerged as basically a, um, a follow-up document from the Vatican Council. So this, this new code... Although this book is bigger than this book, this book, 1917 code, has more canons in it. Mm. <laughs> and uh, so, so as, as Father Osterman is teaching us about marriage legislation and how the marriage annulment process works. Now, again, this is a, a lot of technical stuff, but it, it just shows you that there's a, there is some clarity and, and some confusion. American tribunals were operating at that time under what were called the American procedural norms. Mm -hmm. Now, th these norms greatly advanced the possibility of Catholics and, and others, too, connected with the church, to obtain declaration of nullity, and then that enabled, of course, many people to have marriages recognized, reconciled to the church, and people to get married, and and. And so that was operative until this code, the 1983 code, came into effect, which made two, two changes. One, one change was that it, it was required that priests, first of all, only priests, only clerics could be judges. Now, it had already been approved under procedural norms that there could be a single judge instead of a three-judge tribunal to, you know, to deal with these matters. But 
of the requirement of the 17 Code was that the judge was to have a degree in canon law, you know, a doctorate or licentiate, or equivalent experience. Well, guess how many priests with equivalent experience were on tribunals? Most. Most, most of them, that's right. And so the big question in 1983 was the code said the priests on the tribunal must have a doctorate or at least a licentiate. No provision for this um, equivalent experience. And so the question was, well, what about priests who are already doing this ministry? Do they get grandfathered in? And that question was really never answered because I think either individually or by province or collectively, uh, bishops wisely decided we need to educate our priests in the new code. And so I was you know, doing this work and had been, you know, a, at least somewhat had adapted to mm -hmm. it, and I accepted the, the offer to go to Catholic U back in 85 to, you know, to learn canon law. And again, another wonderful experience. Here I am in the, you know, in the, you know, the major capital with all of its cultural uh, and historical uh, markings. My sister happened to live in that area at the time, so I had a connection with um, with her and her family, but the main thing was, I'm again in a house with um, other priests all across the country, highly competitive mm -hmm. atmosphere, uh, very good professors, and um, learning you know, that canon law was not matrimonial law. Seven, seven books in the Code of Canon Law, mm -hmm. and so we, and we had to go we went through all of them. I might add with just a little bit of uh, irony or black humor. We came to book six in the code. Book six is penal law. <laughs> and I remember Tom Green, the professor, saying, well, you probably won't be using this a lot, but we have to go through it. Mm -hmm. uh, guess what? He was wrong. <laughs> For tell, tell the listening audience uh, that... Um, what might that entail? I mean, when people think of violations of the penal code, they think that they've committed a crime. But um, what, practically speaking, uh, does that address in the church? Uh, well, well, practically speaking, I'm I'm studying you know, canon law, and then you know, at, at the same time that what we call the first wave of sexual abuse uh, uh, instances. Uh, erupted in the country. Now that first wave uh, subsided when it was more or less proven that Cardinal Bernadine had been falsely accused. Mm -hmm. So it it went underground, but it didn't go away. Mm -hmm. And then in uh, whatever it was, 2000, 2002. 2001, 2002, yeah. you have the the Geigen case from yes, from, from Louisiana. Uh, from, oh, or Louisiana, yeah. right? We had that. That now that didn't. I don't think that that made the, oh. the national movement. It was, it was a local thing here for sure, okay. but it was the you know, the Boston case and then the uh, the Porter the Porter and Fall River. That was kind of wasn't that the that was a big one. Yeah, that was my my my, my memory was John Geigen. Mm -hmm. Oh uh, yeah, John Gagan from Boston. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and and then of course the the Boston Globe's yeah. report and. 
and so this this meant that, that the the you know the canon 1395 which ad addresses uh, uh, you know the well sexual abuse situations mm -hmm. uh, you know became quite important and there are there are other you know there, there are lots of ecclesiastical uh, issues you know, abuse of the sacraments uh, Use of abuse of authority. Yeah, it's not just sexual abuse mm -hmm. that we need to be concerned about. And another um, development, very recent, is that Book Six of the Code has been revised. Now, it's not that there are big changes, but you know, any changes you know has to be looked at. And so I'm studying that now, and it comes into effect on December eighth, mm -hmm. and it and it will address a few things that have. Developed, you know, in particular, uh, what we might call obstruction of justice. You know, that is when authority fails to address or conceals um, mm -hmm. the fact of uh, criminal activity uh, going on. That could be sexual in nature, it could be financial in nature, it could be uh, just basic uh, abuse of authority. What was the, um, so uh, Monsignor Paulus talked about the Code of 1917 and the Code of 1983. When I was a seminarian in the mid-80s to, to, to late-80s, we had the Code. Uh, we obviously were taught the new Code in, in that one semester on Canon Law class. But um, what what is the, obviously the, the Code of 1917, that wasn't the first um, volume of laws had the church had been developing canon law from what the Middle Ages or well, even before. You, you, I think you'd have to say the church has always had uh, a, a canonical element. You know, can, you know, canon, as I, as I looked it up, it was uh, from from the Greek. Uh, the canon was like a ruler. Mm -hmm. He was used by a builder, and then it became a rule. Mm -hmm. You know, the and and. You know, look at you know, look at look at scripture for the Old Testament. What's the first part of the Old Testament called? The Pentateuch, the Law. Mm -hmm. uh, what do we have in the New Testament? Well, one of the you know one of the big events in the New Testament was the so-called Council of Jerusalem, and what came out of that? A law about who could become Christian mm -hmm. and, and and what what were the restrictions and and and, uh, and allowances for that. And then you might jump ahead to Nicaea three twenty five. Uh, what was Jesus? Was he God? Was he man? Human divine? And, mm -hmm. and, and so uh, the, 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 the tradition in the church of legislation has been part of what the church has done from the beginning. What, what are the rules? Who makes the rules? Who interprets the rules? Uh, what happens when the rules are broken? All those things have to be uh, addressed by any kind of community. And it's either done in a formal way or an informal way, and the tendency of the church has been to try to make things, you know, formal and consistent. And so this, uh, and so local ecumenical councils and local councils and dioceses would would have legislation, and this built up over the over the centuries. And there were there were attempts from time to time to what we might say. Know, codify mm -hmm. things that is get rid of things that had fallen out of use uh, or organize things but there was no actual uh, code until 1917 and the code was specifically 
compiled to address the fact that there were uh, you know, uh, people throw, I, I read the number, like 10,000 types of, of you know, local or universal laws. And, uh, and so how do you, uh, you know, can this actually be uh, summarized, systematized, or codified? Mm -hmm. So as a canon lawyer, um, Monsignor Pavler has never uh, stopped being a priest. So shifting from your responsibility as, as, as a canon lawyer and having been the pastor at Sacred Heart, um, I think, let's see, 2015, the summer? I was uh, 2003 to 2015. Um, what, again, separating your life as a canon lawyer and having been at the retreat house, what have you found, Mark, to be uh, the greatest joy of your priesthood in 47 years of, of priesthood? That's kind of a difficult question, Bishop, mm -hmm. because I've found most of my priestly life to have been a, um, you know, a happy and fulfilling life, as well as a, a difficult and frustrating mm -hmm. one. And I, I, I always had a great love for liturgy. I think that that's what drew me to the priesthood. I started, mm -hmm. I started serving mass yes. in the second grade, learning mm -hmm. Latin, and uh, and then. Later on, I got enamored with scholarship, especially with uh, you know, biblical scholarship. Mm -hmm. And I never really taught and never really wanted to teach. But, but I think that my love of scripture, that led to a, a desire to be a good preacher as far as making use of, of, of uh, scripture. So I would say that liturgy has been mm -hmm. a real joy in my life. And I think, you know, again, Monsignor partly speaking about, he still uh, helps out uh, in um, in parishes when asked by usually to cover for guys if they have to be away. But again, he's never, um, I think you've never lost sight. And I want to thank you for that, that you are a priest first and a canon lawyer second. I mean, the, the expressions of uh, the Eucharist, uh, liturgy, the preaching. Also, uh, if you're ever at a large gathering at the cathedral, Monsignor Potler will help me at times in the Mass to, uh, to uh, sing some of the parts that uh, I don't have that gift, and so I want to thank him for that. So watch closely uh, Monsignor Potler, and he will uh, be part of that Mass, uh, maybe amongst the concelebrants, but, but leading. I want to thank uh, Mark you for, for being here, for giving us a little insight into your uh, work as the Judicial Vicar, and... Uh, be assured of our prayers and our gratitude, and we thank Monsignor Father for being here. Thank you, Bishop. Thank you. Walking in Faith with Bishop Daly is a production of the Catholic Diocese of Spokane. Walking in Faith is produced and edited by Mitchell Palmquist. It can be heard on Sacred Heart Radio, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and many other podcasting apps.